you hear this frequently, the concept of patient-centered care. And what that really is, is recognizing that people are diverse in their backgrounds, in their healthcare needs, in the ways that they like to communicate, the ways that they're able to communicate and express themselves. And so having healthcare providers who are able to work effectively with all patients and see them as whole people, not just a collection of medical problems or not just as challenges to be overcome or puzzles to be resolved, but as people who can be partners in their own healthcare and who really need to be seen as important experts in themselves and in what they need. Welcome to another episode of Advocates in Action, a podcast created by the National Patient Advocate Foundation, a nonprofit that develops initiatives promoting equitable access to affordable quality health care through policy action and partnerships. I'm your host, Ashley Freeman, and this season of our podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Zero, the end of prostate cancer. We will build upon the Promoting Health Equity in Cancer Care virtual workshop hosted by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, which was co-chaired by Gwen Darian of NPAF and Reggie Tucker-Seely of Zero. I am so happy to have you joining me here today, Kellen. I would love for us to kick off with you sharing a little bit about your background and your work with the people who are tuning in and how your work connects to this topic of health equity and identity in healthcare. Yeah, my name is Kellen Baker and I'm the executive director of the Women Walker Institute. And at the Institute, we do research policy and education And we have a very close relationship with a federally qualified health center. And in our work, we look particularly at how to serve LGBTQ people and people living with HIV. I'm a health services researcher by training. I received my PhD from Johns Hopkins, but I'm a health policy person, a public health person by practice. I came to DC in 2008 to do a master's program at George Washington University and kind of stumble into all of the excitement of the election of President Obama in 2008, and then efforts around health reform and healthy people and all of these opportunities to really shift the framework from health disparities, sort of what's wrong, to health equity, which is what would we want it to look like? What does success, what does the future look like? And I came to this kind of a very unorthodox way, if you will. I was a Russian and astrophysics major in undergrad And then I moved to Moscow after I graduated to work as a translator for the Russian Academy of Sciences. And while I was there, I had previously been a volunteer with Special Olympics in the United States, and I continued to volunteer with Special Olympics in Moscow. And I saw the ways in which both laws and sort of social norms and customs really circumscribed the opportunities that people with disabilities had. And at the same time, I was also going through my own gender journey. I had come out as gay in the 1990s in high school and then realized that I was actually, am actually transgender. And so I transitioned in Russia and had a lot of firsthand exposure to the ways in which, again, some people have opportunities and others don't. And on the basis of aspects such as having a disability or being transgender or being, you know, a member, broadly speaking, of the LGBT community. So I wanted to do work that would let me focus on those elements of people's lives where they would be able to make more decisions about who they are, what they need, and how they're going to live their lives. And that's what led me to public health. 
when you say decisions about who people are and, you know, what they need, that just makes me think of the many recent discussions around healthcare and identity and who determines uh, the healthcare access and choices that certain people can make, and truly this concept around embodiment, you know, and how that connects to our identities and our healthcare experience. So, can you share a little bit more about what that that means to you, both personally but also professionally? To me, one of the highest goals of health equity is to make it possible for everyone to be who they are. And individual people's needs differ based on their identities, based on their bodies, based on their circumstances in life. There are so many things that affect our ability to be most fully ourselves. But healthcare services are a really important factor in all of that because health is so foundational. Good health is really the underpinning of our ability to do so many other things, to enjoy so many other benefits, opportunities, and rights in our lives. And so healthcare has this really unique relationship, I think, to embodiment and autonomy, the understanding of ourselves as full and whole human beings living our lives the way that we want to and the way that uh, is the most meaningful to us. And so if you're looking at a lot of the discussions that have been happening recently around access to health services, you do see a very disturbing trend in efforts to limit people's access to healthcare services that can really allow them to embody fully who they are and to live their own best lives. You see that in relation to gender-affirming care for transgender people. I am living proof of the importance of gender-affirming care. It was literally impossible for me to recognize my face in a mirror before I was able to access gender-affirming care that allowed me to be who I am. And that is something, that experience of being able to be fully in your body and to be fully who you are is something that I want for everyone. I want it for trans people and I want it for cisgender people and I want it for young people and I want it for adults. And it also has important intersections with other types of healthcare services such as abortion, other types of healthcare services that relate to reproductive health, reproductive rights, reproductive justice. Abortion isn't the only type of healthcare that is sort of reproductive health and reproductive justice but it is definitely an important component of people being able to make the decisions that they need to make for themselves. And to have the states and the Supreme Court increasingly inserting themselves between people who can become pregnant or people who are pregnant and the ability to make decisions about that pregnancy, that is really scary to me because health equity, in my opinion, in my experience, is really, again, about that embodiment and about that autonomy and being the person you were meant to be and living your life accordingly and having restrictions from politicians on gender-affirming care, on abortion, on other types of healthcare services is absolutely antithetical to what health equity stands for. Like you mentioned, restrictions and laws and other people making decisions about the the bodies of other people in a world where respectful equitable care is what does that look like to you you know if you had solutions or a magic wand that you can use to change and reform things what would that look like 
it looks like universal access to the healthcare that we need. Here in the United States, access to healthcare is rationed by income. That should never be the case. Access to care is also determined by racism, by sexism, by xenophobia, and our feelings about who is deserving of healthcare services. In a world where health equity is our North Star and our foundational framework, those kinds of restrictions and barriers would not exist. Everyone, no matter who they are, where they come from, what their health needs are, how much money they have, would be able to access the healthcare services that they need. And then also, in terms of being in the clinical environment and working with providers, it would really look like providers being prepared to provide care to the whole person. You hear this frequently, the concept of patient-centered care. And what that really is, is recognizing that people are diverse in their backgrounds, in their healthcare needs, in the ways that they like to communicate, the ways that they're able to communicate and express themselves. And so having healthcare providers who are able to work effectively with all patients and see them as whole people, not just a collection of medical problems or not just as challenges to be overcome or puzzles to be resolved, but as people who can be partners in their own healthcare and who really need to be seen as important experts in themselves and in what they need. And then the last thing that I would say is that in particular, if you look at the clinical encounter, what happens in a healthcare setting is really ultimately a relatively small proportion of the overall contributions to your health and well-being. So much of what affects our health and well-being happens outside the clinic. It happens in our homes. It happens in our relationships. It happens in our neighborhoods. And so the social determinants of health has sort of become a buzzword that I think a lot of people are very unclear exactly about what we mean when we say social determinants of health. But to me, what that means is everything that happens in your life matters. Everything that happens in your life affects your ability to be healthy, to be well, and to be yourself. And so as public health advocates and as healthcare providers, all of us who are looking towards health equity need to be looking not just at the patient-provider relationship, but also at what's going on outside in our neighborhoods, what opportunities do people have to walk? What opportunities do people have to grocery shop? In our jobs, how are we being supported at work? How are we able to do the work that provides us with a feeling of fulfillment and meaning without taking away our ability to live other aspects of our lives, like having a family or um, exercise or any of the things that can contribute to someone's health and well-being? There's so much that goes on outside the clinic. And I really think we need to be focused on that just as strongly, if not more so, on what happens between providers and patients. That's a, a huge part of our, our mission. And I loved what you said about providers really seeing us as whole people and partners in our healthcare and experts in our bodies, because you're right, so much of it happens outside of our once a year physical check-in or you know any whatever amount of time you have in between doctor's appointments, there's so much that happens. And so have there been systems or researchers or place where you have seen them recognizing that 
patient-centered care is important and really partnering with patients because I know that you and I aren't the only ones who feel this way and I know that there's amazing work happening. So are there certain examples that you can point to that are showing the beginnings of building towards this? Here at Whitman Walker, we are a community health system that includes Whitman Walker Health, which is a federally qualified health center. And I think federally qualified health centers or FQHCs are really at the forefront of whole person care and addressing the social, economic, and political determinants of health. Because we are safety net providers. We provide care to everyone, regardless of their ability to pay. We are located in communities, cities, small towns, rural areas all across the country. And we have incredibly diverse patient populations. At Women Walker, a large proportion of our patients identify as LGBT. A large proportion of our patients are Black or of Hispanic origin. A lot of our patients don't speak English as their first language. People come to Whitman Walker from all across the Washington, D.C. area, including all across Maryland and Virginia. And in our telehealth services, we serve people even farther afield. So I really think the FQHC model is an important guiding light, if you will, or an important example of how to provide that type of whole person care, because we provide not just medical services, but also mental and behavioral health services. We provide dental services. We provide legal services because we recognize that there are often legal barriers to people getting access to the health insurance coverage or the health care that they need. Or, for example, for transgender people, making sure that trans people can change their name and gender on their identity documents. That is an important determinant of health. A lot of trans people aren't able to access appropriate identity documents, which makes them unsafe mm. trying to move through their daily life. It makes it harder to get a job. It makes it harder to go to school. It makes it harder to get housing. And so that is that framework of providing not just medical services, but mental and behavioral, dental, legal, other community health services like HIV prevention, where we're out in the community, we're not waiting for folks to come to us. But we're out in the community and saying, you know, here are resources that we hope can help you make the decisions that you want to make about your health and about your body. And this patient population that we have at Whitman Walker and at FQHCs across the country is increasingly the future of U.S. healthcare because we are already seeing patients who are coming in with mental and behavioral health concerns as we see increasingly often in the general population after, for example, COVID. We are seeing people aging with HIV. We are seeing people age with other chronic conditions. We are working with very diverse patient populations in terms of race, ethnicity, language, ability, sexual orientation, gender identity. And so that model of how to work effectively, how to serve these patient populations that we have here at our FQHCs I really think has incredibly important lessons to teach the healthcare system as a whole. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Like you said, using that blueprint to basically be pioneers, showing that, hey, a perfect world like this does exist, (laughs) is able. And I love what you mentioned about all of those wraparound services that matter in other environments where people are getting care 
they aren't receiving that legal care or mental health. And all of those things are impacting their medical care because everything is interwoven. This whole season and everything that we're building up to with our policy consortium, the title is Identity and the Healthcare Experience. And when you say whole person care, it also makes me think about the fact that us as whole people have multiple identities at play. So you can't just speak to one part of me and ignore the other. You can't just speak to me being a woman and ignore the fact that I'm a black woman. And that poses different parts of me as well. Yeah, I mean, intersectionality is often used these days to mean just diversity of identity and acknowledgement that people can be both gay and black or can be both a woman and someone living with a disability. And I think that's really important because we do often forget that in health equity work, we're encouraged to think in a single axis way where we're looking specifically at racial justice or we're looking specifically at disability justice or at justice for LGBTQ people. And that's really important because that helps us understand the more specific challenges um, along those single axes and allows us to think of ways that we might begin to address them. But there is no way to address issues related to, for example, LGBTQ communities and LGBTQ population health without also understanding intersections with Black and other communities of color, with disability communities, with folks for whom English is not their primary language, and other ways in which our lives are just not monolithic. At the same time, the other piece that I really try to keep in mind in relation to intersectionality, if you're looking at the work of Kimberly Crenshaw, who originated the term and then others who have worked with it, it is really an analysis of power. It's not just saying, who are the folks who live at the intersections? It's saying, how are the lives of the people at those intersections made harder by the ways in which power is distributed, hoarded, and exercised? And so it really is not just a conversation about people. It's also a conversation about systems. It's a conversation about racism. It's a conversation about classism. It's a conversation around sexism and the ways that sexism is used to undermine not just the position of women, but of LGBTQ people. So much of what people struggle with in terms of their own health and well-being and then population-wise in terms of health disparities goes back to distributions of power protections and resources. And so that to me is one of the most important reasons why intersectionality comes up in the context of health equity, because it allows us to see what are those structural barriers that are creating not just additive disparities at the intersections, they're actually creating multiplicative, exponentially greater disparities, difficulties, barriers at those intersections. And so that to me really informs our efforts in health equity to use that power analysis and say, it's not enough to understand what the landscape looks like. We need to actually change it. We need to actually change those systems that are distributing power in the first place. When you say distributions of power, the first word that I think of is justice. And I don't think we always think of justice when we think of health equity but it seems to me that you've made that connection. There's a scholar, Paula Braveman, who has written that health equity is social justice in health. And I really like that definition because 
it encompasses all of the ways in which we're not just using health equity as a lens to understand what's wrong. We're actually using it as the foundation to build something different. Justice is not static. Justice is action. It is not simply saying things are wrong. It is saying we have an obligation to fix them. And so that connection between health equity is social justice and health, to me, brings along with it the imperative, not simply to understand where the gaps are, not simply to map the barriers, but to actually change the systems that are creating those problems in the first place and to actually strive for justice. Justice is positive tension, right? It is the simultaneous acknowledgement that something is wrong and the belief that it can be made better. And it brings a requirement on each of us to act. And that is what I love about health equity and about these conversations that are connecting what's happening in the clinic, what's happening in the hospital or the doctor's office, to what's happening in our neighborhoods, our families, our communities. Because there are so many opportunities that we all have to reach not just for the best for ourselves, but for the best for everyone, for the best opportunity, the best freedom, for people to get access to those benefits, those protections, those resources that, to your question earlier, allow us to be ourselves, to be fully embodied, to be moving through this world as who we were meant to be. And the power of health equity to focus us all on that goal and to move us all together in that positive tension, that search for justice. I think that to me is the reason why health equity is such an incredible foundational framework for all of this work that we have to do together. I'm Ashley Freeman, and thanks for listening to this episode of Advocates in Action. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, review, and share this podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. We enjoy connecting with our listeners, so please visit our website at npaf.org slash podcast for show notes, resources, and ways to engage with us on social media. Thanks for listening.